So this evening's reading has two parts. The first is a verse from 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And the second part is, if you turn back a page, it is chapter 3, and it's starting at verse 8. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult but with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We thank you for uh, your grace, uh, Lord God, that it is your unmerited love revealed in Jesus that has brought us all together this evening. It is your grace, your unmerited love for us in Jesus that empowers us by your Spirit uh, to live good lives now and have hope for the future. It is all by grace that we're saved and by grace that we can be Christians. Write that on our hearts and minds this evening, I pray. Amen. So we're looking at this uh, 
little short series from 1 Peter on the true grace of God, what the true grace of God is, and how we can stand fast in the true grace of God. A very, a very silly story is told of a golfer who stood on the first tee and drove his ball sweetly down the fairway for 250 yards. A rare experience for me. He was, uh, he was chuffed with his drive and arriving at his ball to play a second shot, he was disappointed to see that his ball had plugged into the ground and was now below the surface of the grass. Very difficult second shot and there were swarms of ants all around his ball. Frustrated by this, he took a hack at the ball with his fairway wood but missed it completely. An air shot. So he's now playing his third shot. He takes out his eight iron And the same thing happens again, but this time he scatters ants all over the place, killing several. Furious, now he takes his sand wedge out, determined to move the ball forward with his fourth shot. He gets into his backswing, he's concentrating ferociously, and just as he is about to crunch down on the ball, he hears one ant say to the other, quick, get on the ball, or we could be in trouble. (laughs) Some of you will have heard me tell that story before. (laughs) Where is is the place of safety in a troubled world? To what can we cling when life is at its most uncertain? Peter writes his first letter to little groups of Christians scattered around the Roman province of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and the area kind of around the border of Turkey and Syria, modern-day Syria. It's probably no safer for Christians in that area now than it was then. And his letter, this letter, 1 Peter, is full of warnings about suffering and danger. And he says in his letter, if you suffer for doing right, you're blessed. He says the end of all things is near. It must seem like that to so many of our brothers and sisters in the world right now. Think of those who Justin Welby is visiting in Egypt at the moment who are facing persecution, the Coptic Christians in Egypt in particular. He writes, Do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. He writes that we have an enemy prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And amidst this great uncertainty... Peter says that the place of safety, the place to which we should cling, the place we should go, is the place of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate at this time of year as uh, we think through Easter. Just look for a moment uh, at verse uh, 21, which is the kind of climax of the passage. It saves you. He's talking about baptism and the rite of initiation into the church. We are saved, you could say, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a very obscure bit of the parish that Ed read beautifully uh, in verses 19 to 22. Now, mercifully, I checked my notes, and I have preached on this in the past here in St. Andrews. It was quite interesting to discover what I said, actually, when I look back at my sermon. Uh, And uh, I'm not going to uh, look... intently at that reference to Noah again this evening. Suffice it to say, though, that Peter knows that the resurrection of Jesus is a world-changing event 
with significance far greater, perhaps, than just what we realize for this life. It is, it is our trailblazer into eternity, but it is also the kind of victory shout to the whole spiritual world inhabited by angelic beings and so on. It's as if heaven itself is opened up by the resurrection and everything. There is cosmic significance in the resurrection. For us now, though, the fact of the resurrection makes all the difference for us now, and especially to those Christians who are struggling for one reason or another. What the resurrection says is it will not always be like this. It will not always be like this. You have been born again into a living hope. You have been born again, he says in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, into an inheritance that nothing can perish, spoil, or fade. The resurrection makes all the difference to how we view this life because we cannot lose. The resurrection declares every believer a winner. We will be with Christ. It may be a surprise to some to discover that even even the controversial cricketer Kevin Peterson can be quotable in a sermon. A few years ago, Kevin Peterson said this. He said, things happen for a reason. This was in an interview with Matthew Side in the Times. He said, I believe that God has planned my life for me. I think the harder you work, the more successful you will be. But I also believe that God controls everything. Matthew Side pointed out the paradox. How can you be both master of your own destiny and believe that God has planned your life. Peterson, he writes, does not register this contradiction. (laughs) But the dilemma of which KP seems unaware was extremely poignant uh, for the readers of 1 Peter, and it can be very poignant for us, and certainly for brothers and sisters who are facing persecution. They are told that they are God's elect, verse 1 of the letter, of of chapter 1. They're told that they are guaranteed an imperishable inheritance. That though once nobodies in relation to God, they are now selected for the most exclusive team in the world. Chosen priests, they are described as. We are described as royal, chosen people, royal priests, a holy nation belonging to God, chapter 2, verse 9. So for Kevin Peterson, the, the dilemma might be, how come if God is so great, I don't, get some, I don't get runs every single time? Or how come if I'm such a lovely Christian, my teammates can't stand me? That might be his dilemma. But for the early Christians, things were much more critical, much more critical, and perhaps much more critical than they are for most of us. How come if God is so good and the resurrection has happened and we're winning, how come we are suffering so much? How come we are kicked out of our families or ostracized from society for our faith? How come my, my wife or my husband, for whom I pray daily, is not converted and gives me a hard time at home? Why is it so hard sometimes to be a Christian? These are questions that many in our time may be asking, and they may be questions that we, even in our relatively uh, comfortable situation here, in the UK are asking ourselves as well at times, either for ourselves or for friends who are going through difficult times. How come, if God is in control, 
things are so difficult? Well, the first thing to remember is that the resurrection demonstrates clearly that God does, in fact, control everything. God does, in fact, control everything. Verse 15, he urges those of us who may be battling with this dilemma, but in your hearts set about Christ, set apart Christ as Lord. Recognize privately and publicly that Jesus is the Lord of your life and the Lord of the universe. And because of the resurrection, we are secure. He is in command, even if awful things are happening. Further evidence for Peter's assertion comes in verse 18, where he says, as we looked at last week, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus is Lord because only he is the substitute who has taken our place on the cross and can satisfy God's anger against sin, and it's sin that is causing us the suffering and pain in the world. And Jesus has paid the price of sin. Jesus can rescue us from sin's clutches, and in the resurrection, even from the worst result of sin, death, Jesus has overcome Look at verses 21 and 22 again, uh, where, he, where Peter writes, and you can see that he's battling with this almost himself because he knows so many of his friends are being persecuted, losing their lives because they're following Christ. He says this water, baptism water, symbolizes, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. We can meet God cleansed washed clean by the blood of Christ, symbolized in baptism. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How? Because he has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Everything in submission to Jesus because he's in control. Peter is convinced that everything in all creation is subject to the rule of Christ. Jesus is Lord. This is the great news that we have for the world. If we believe it, it must color every decision that we make and our reaction to every situation. Jesus is Lord. If anyone asks you, incidentally, what is a Christian? The easiest, quickest answer. If you get a chance ever in the, you know, if someone comes and asks you in the street or get a chance to give a soundbite, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who believes that Jesus is Lord. What is the message we have for the world? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The resurrection proves it. Jesus is Lord. He is the God of the whole universe. It's the best summary of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. So how then should we live? If God is in control, even if awful things are happening, God is in control, how should we live? For Peter, who's a naturally kind of rebellious, extrovert sort of chap, he says that it's important to be eager to do good. That's really interesting, isn't it? Be eager to do good, not to rail against the things that are going against you. Be eager to do good. 
That is what the resurrection should make us think. Because this life is not all that there is. We are destined for eternal life. So our interests, my interests now, cannot be of paramount importance. They may be very important. It's very important to live well in this life, as you'll see in a moment. It's very, very important. But it's not of paramount importance what happens to me now because the resurrection has said there is a glorious future. Now, in the light of the resurrection, I must be eager to do good for others. So how might we do that? How might we live a good life? Well, Paul gives us three reasons. With this, I close my sermon this evening. Three good reasons. Live a good life, he says, verse 8, because we are, as a family, we should have a special love for one another. There is to be in the community, a new, in the world, a new kind of community. It is not acceptable for Christians to be horrid to one another. It is not acceptable. We are to be good to one another because God has made us a new family, a new community in the world. We need to aspire to this across churches and denominations, of course. And, of course, we need to aspire to it, and it's often a great challenge, in the context of our local congregation here at 6 o'clock as we build community together. We should be uh, a community that really loves and supports one another. It's one of the reasons I think this idea of the um, mums getting together once a month to support one another, their MOT, is such a brilliant idea. So if uh, on occasion we have uh, reason to uh, correct one another, uh, we should do so carefully. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Let us first find plenty of reasons to bless and commend one another before we criticize. It was my great friend and mentor, with whom actually I'm having lunch tomorrow, Michael Green, who once said to me when he wanted to correct me on something, he said, I find it much easier to be corrected by someone on something if they have congratulated me on nine other things first. So I was sweetened up with nine beautiful things that he said to me before I was put firmly right on the other thing. And I accepted it. I took it from him, partly because I respect him greatly, partly because I knew that he was looking for good things to say to me as well. We should be really good to each other. Secondly, we should live a good life because according to Peter, God will bless us for it. Verses 10 to 14, where he quotes Psalm 34, which is a very realistic psalm. It says in verse 19 that the righteous man may have many troubles, but in this psalm, uh, Peter is uh, quoting a psalm that is full of joy in the Lord and confidence in his overarching providence. Taste and see, Psalm 34 says, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, there's much more that we could add to that. But God's blessing uh, may, like Christ's work, be in the unseen spiritual dimension. They may be, they may be uh, blessings that the world hardly recognizes. They see suffering Christians being persecuted, perhaps. But deep in the Christian's heart is a blessing that is almost indescribable. So there may be uh, these blessings, maybe psychological, 
They may be interpersonal, they may be spiritual, they may be in the area of answered prayer, but they will be very real for all that. And those of you here who follow Christ will know exactly what I mean. Live a good life because God will bless you for it. Thirdly, live a good life because it is in itself a witness to the truth of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. Leading a good life, doing things that are right and good and honest and open, truthful, point to the resurrection. I can't do better than read again what Peter writes. But in your hearts, set about Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander because they know they're wrong. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Can't really improve on that. It's easy enough to understand we are to do good. We are to be good people much easier to say, much harder to do, of course. The true grace of God, then, is revealed in the amazing fact of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, a fact that we have examined here in this church and seen good reasons to believe many, many times. The grace of God is revealed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that is the proof, the proof that God controls everything. Even death is defeated by God. Even if we die, we win. Because of it, lead a life of doing good, knowing that the best is still to come. Amen.